Hey, this is Chad Brown. Thanks for checking out Chad and Nate On Demand, presented by SCL Mortgage, the home of MySpecialMortgage.com. You're listening to Chad and Nate on Denver's Sports Station, 104.3 The Fan. This is Chad and Nate. James Merlat filling in for Nate Jackson. Uh, Baron Browning was definitely the defensive standout uh, on Saturday night in that uh, opening game against the Cowboys. Sack, a couple uh, pressures, tip pass, tackle for loss, number of good tackles, set the edge well in the run game. Uh, out of anybody on the defensive side of the ball, he was definitely the guy with the most flash and pop. Um, much has been made about his transition from inside linebacker to outside linebacker. Uh, George Payton and Coach Hackett thought his size, bend, skill set uh, presented a higher upside for the uh, kid at Ohio State to play outside linebacker. And so far, the experiment has worked well. Um, I'm still, I won't call it hesitant. Um, I still would like to see more uh, just because you did it against twos and threes. Now you got to start to do that against ones. Yep. Um, but. You've taken this thing to a whole different level, so I'll let you explain yourself. Well, and to some extent, I I stole this from Mark Schlereth. He was talking about this on Monday or floated the the two names at the same time, and I'm like, hey, there's there's an idea there. So here's my here's my thought on it. I think Baron Browning is a is a good player. It's, how do you get him on the field? If everybody's healthy, your starting outside linebackers are Randy Gregory and Bradley Chubb. Mm-hmm. Those are your edge rushers. So then Baron Browning becomes a rotational guy. He's in there with Malik Reed. Um, Nick Benito, Jonathan Cooper, whoever emerges kind of in that group. I think that's, I wouldn't say that's a waste of his abilities, but it potentially could be a waste if he turns out to be the type of player that he looked like on Saturday that Nathaniel Hackett was raving about during training camp. Like he went up to the podium and was just lauding how good Baron Browning has looked during camp. It's like, okay, well, if that's true, then you have to figure out how to get him on the field. So that's sort of where it starts from. The second part of it is, even before the Jonas Griffith injury, inside linebacker was the weak spot on this roster mm-hmm. defensively. Mm-hmm. It was okay. They didn't address it in free agency, really. I mean, you bring in Alex Singleton, but he's not even a starter, so you didn't address it if you bring in a guy that isn't even running with the ones to begin with. They didn't address it in the draft with Nicobe Dean or somebody like that. So it's like, okay, that's still a weakness. Baron Browning played inside last year. And he was fine toward the end of the year. I mean, he, you saw 56 around the, the ball, and he was, you know, certainly wasn't a liability. So he can play inside. He can play outside. That, to me, is a similar skill set to what you see out of Micah Parsons in Dallas. Now, Micah Parsons does it to an elite level, right? He was in the conversation for Defensive Player of the Year last year as a rookie. But part of what made him so good was that Dan Quinn moved him all over the field. Of Yeah, he came into the league as an inside linebacker, but he lined up inside, he lined up outside, he he lined up in coverage. There would be times where he was covering a slot receiver, a la Von Miller, when Vic Fangio decided that was a good idea. But he had him; they had him all over the place. I don't think you go to that extent with Baron Browning, but if you put Baron Browning as, all right, he's our inside linebacker, but we're not just going to keep him in the middle. We're going to get creative and move him around and do different things. To me, that's a way to get your best 11 on the field. I would rather have Baron Browning on the field than Alex Singleton, than Josie Jewell. Because of the different things he can do, 
I think that would give Ijiro Evero just so many more options in terms of what he can do defensively that I think that's something that uh, that may make some sense for this defense. Do I think he's Micah Parsons? No, but do I think they can use him in a Micah Parsons type of way and sort of a you know Swiss Army knife uh, uh, on that defense? Yeah, I think that might be a creative approach to get your best 11 on the field. I can understand where you're coming from. Uh, I showed up to see you. I was going to be an outside linebacker. Hey, we got uh, some All-Americans and Canavis McGee and Alfred Williams. Uh, what do you think about playing inside linebacker? There you go. Uh, I want to play, Coach. I want to play. So I played inside linebacker for two years. Those guys left. Um, I moved to outside. And then, then I was an All-American. Yep. Uh, I go to well, – while entering into the draft – uh, I go meet with the Pittsburgh Steelers before the draft. I sit down with Marvin Lewis. Uh, he, we, we watch tape of the Pittsburgh Steelers outside linebackers. Bill Cower calls me the day before the draft. Hey, we just signed Kevin Green. Can you play inside linebacker? Coach, I can punt if you want me to. I can't punt. But that's what I said. But that's the, that's the approach. That's the attitude. Right. And Mindset. so I end up, you know, playing inside linebacker there for three years. Um Greg Lloyd gets hurt uh, game one in, in year four of my time in Pittsburgh. I moved to outside linebacker. You know, now I'm suddenly all pro, uh, pro bowl, and some people's defensive player of the year. So that kind of switch can happen. Uh, the Michael Parsons role, I think, becomes a little bit more difficult than you're describing it from the execution of it. Because if he's now going to play inside linebacker, Baron Browning, in this scenario, um, then he's going to be lost as part of the rotation for outside linebacker. Uh, he's shifted over to learn this outside linebacker role. It's not exactly easy to flip-flop all the time back and forth. Um, fortunately, over the years, I was able to develop the understanding and skill set to be able to play either one. Um, and in my at some point in my career, I played every linebacker position that's ever probably ever been invented um, due to need, injury, uh, to your point, hey, this is you know a guy who can fill this role, um, different scheme, different style, all that stuff. Um, so there's the thought of having a guy who's got tremendous flexibility is great, but in the end, for a player who's still developing, that switching back and forth may be a little bit more uh, of an ask than an actual benefit to the team. Well, when they decided to move him outside, it made me nervous initially. Right, because we've had two examples in recent years where it just didn't work out. They drafted Marcus Walker out of Florida State. Right, is he going to play inside? Is he going to play outside? He gains weight. He loses weight. It just never seemed to work. Well, he was his issue was he was never either one. He was right. a tweener. Baron Brown is clearly not a tweener. He's a outside linebacker body type. Justin Hollins, they did the same thing. Is right. he going to play inside? Is he going to play outside? He was too small. He was, I'm sorry, too tall to play inside. Agreed. No shot. Agreed. And it, it, they just could never figure it out. But those two memories are kind of, you know, fresh for me. So when I hear, oh, we're going to move him to the outside, I start thinking of those examples. Like, really, here we go again. Mm-hmm. Just toggling a guy back and forth, and he never gets comfortable in anything, and, and you don't get to see really what he can do. So I, I get what you're saying. I just think if he, he, he clearly is a good football player. He clearly can do both. I think he's probably a better edge guy than he was last year on the inside, but he can do both, and I want to maximize the number of snaps he's on the field. I don't want it to be, hey, he plays 10, 15 plays when he's given 
Bradley Chubb a, a, a rest. It's like, hey, if he's that good a player, how do we get him out here as, as much as possible? The mechanics of it, how you make it work, listen, I haven't gone through the, the Cowboys film from last year to see here's how they did it and here's the rotations and here's who came on the field when Micah Parsons moved to edge, here's who came in on the inside. I don't know how all that works, but they made it work in Dallas. Right. Now, it's a special player, so you go outside your you go out of your way to make it work. Right. But that's part of what made Micah Parsons so good last year is you had no idea where he was coming from. It's it's so much more difficult to game plan for a guy when it's not I know he's going to be right there. He's all over the field. I do think that you have a guy who's shown the ability to do multiple things. That would be an outside the box way to maximize his ability. Dig the thought. I think the Skill set from Browning's not quite there to warrant a really a rescheming of the defense. <clears throat> and Coach Evero talked about in his first introductory press conference about how he wanted to affect the quarterback. And I think Baron Browning can be more impactful as part of the edge rotation than he could be as some floater guy who still hasn't fully developed into either role. So I see his impact, greatest impact being hey, as soon as Bradley Chubb or as soon as Randy Gregory go, you know, get fatigued, we can run this guy in the game, and he can be an instant impact out there. Um, he's already more skilled uh, in the edge run game than Nick Benito is. So the, the, he's already outplayed Clearly. him from that t- yep. standpoint already. So he presents an upside. If you put him on the field, you don't have to worry about the run overwhelming him. If Benito's on the field – teams are going to try to run the ball directly at him. Nate always gets mad at me for the way I say things. Uh-huh. And the way you just said floater guy, he would have been all over that. Like, that makes it sound like I'm just trying to make him some kind of, ah, he's not very important. Right. I want to make him Micah Parsons. That's not some flo- floater guy. But he, but he's not Micah Parsons, so he would end up being a floater guy kind of in between these roles without having the true impact that you would hope from some guy who you're strategically moving around and you're bending and breaking the rules of your defense to put in certain spots. So that's why I use the term floater guy because he's not quite the same skill set as Parsons. I'd rather have Baron Browning on the field than Josie Jewell. Uh, that's my different end. position. At, at the different end of the day, that's, uh, give me my best 11 and I'll figure out how to make him work. <laughs> all right. That is Coach Merillat uh, <laughs> breaking it all down. Uh, the Deshaun Watson news has broke. We got to talk about that uh, unsavory story next. You're listening to Chad and Nate on Denver Sports Station, 1043 The Fan. What did uh, Robson Walton call Roger Goodell? Goodell? Goodell. There we go. Yeah. So like Roger, rhymed with noodle, Goodle. Roger Goodle uh, <laughs> has come out with his, uh, I guess, it'd be his decision. But what is it? Is it a redecision? Is it a a second decision? What, what this whole thing has just been so yeah, messed up. It's been strange because there was an original decision that came down, and then the league they reserved the right, right. to change to not. Abide by the, it, the judge's decision, it. yes. So they appealed it, and now we've got a new decision based on the appeal. So the appellate court, whoever that turned out to be here, has come down with a uh, a revised punishment for Deshaun Watson. So the punishment is 11 games 
He gets to return for week 12 and, what, $5.5 million fine. Plus counseling. Oh, okay. Yeah. Plus counseling. Got yep. it. Yep. That's, for that's for a, Albert Breer. That's the kicker. Uh, they have a bye week, so he'll actually retain, re- return week 13 in Houston. Now, maybe that's coincidence, Chad, that his first game back is going to be against the Texans. I don't tend to believe in coincidence, so mm-hmm. I think those things probably, to some extent, go hand in hand. 11 games and $5 million is better than six games. That's a, that seems like a it's a more appropriate punishment. The problem with all of this, and I've said this for years, and when Goodell first got the job, he came in and really tried to be the disciplinary guy and the hammer and the no-nonsense and we're getting rid of all this stuff. The problem with coming in and trying to be judge, jury, be the police, investigate your own thing, to some extent you're setting yourself up to where you're never going to make anybody happy. Because is 11 games and $5 million better than six in terms of what Deshaun Watson quote-unquote deserves? Yeah, But does it still feel like it's the right answer? No, it doesn't. It still feels like it's a light punishment. Yep. So no matter what you do when you put yourself in the position as as a league, we're going to also be the court system and we're also going to be the police is you set yourself up to where now you're making decisions that are going to be unpopular no matter what you do. So to me, you know, and it's kind of the old Oakland Raiders approach back in the day with Al Davis of like, that's for the court system to decide. Why the league thinks they need to even get involved with that kind of stuff, they're just setting themselves up for, for problems. So I would just leave it to the legal system and say, that's, that's not what we do. We run, a, we run a sports league. But now that they've gotten into it, they have to come up with appropriate punishments, and this does not feel like an appropriate punishment. It doesn't. It just doesn't. For a guy who's going to make $55 million between this year and next year, $5 million fines drop in the bucket. He made $10 million last year to not play. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he didn't have to play a bit, made $10 million, didn't have any wear and tear. Uh, it's, it's, and we started, started to see it this week in the first preseason game. They're in Jacksonville, I believe. And he got booed. There were chants. He's going to deal with that everywhere he goes for the rest of his career. Yeah. I don't think this is one that people forget no. about. This, this is, yeah, this is far too long-term – far too much of a predatory pattern and there's three or four texters on the text line who take uh, great offense when i use that term uh, predatory predatory yes oh that's the appropriate term uh, i certainly believe it to be true um but you know there's there's a certain segment of, of folks on the text line and out there publicly who you know these women knew what they were getting into uh, if you're an instagram massage person then uh you are essentially selling not your services but your body um, so these women are gold diggers. There's all those types of arguments that, you know, just take a deep dive into the text line right now. They're, they're busy with, busy with their text or fi- uh, thumbs, sending out messages to us. I don't buy that thought process ever, but you could sell me on it a little bit if it was one person. Like, okay, maybe, you know, then you get into the he said, she said type of arguments, right? Correct. What is it? What are we at now? 24? 25, 26. Well, the New York Times said 65 plus women have, you know, said that they were contacted by Deshaun Watson for massage therapy through Instagram. Okay. So to me, and I don't know what the number is, right? But there's somewhere between one and 65. Plus. You cross the, you cross the, 
the 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 threshold of okay, this isn't a just a we weren't on the same page. He said, she said, misunderstanding, and we thought I thought one thing like it it isn't that. And I, again, I don't believe it's ever that. But at least there's I, I can be open to hearing that argument when it's an isolated case. This is a it's a pattern, and that's where it becomes the predatory thing that you're talking about. You know, in, in my mind, in a perfect world, Deshaun Watson just wouldn't. I, if, if if I were Roger Goodell and I could wave the magic wand, it would be like, you know what? He's just not in the league anymore. That's a guy that has crossed the line, and I, I don't think he deserves the privilege of playing in the NFL, and that's not what we represent because anything short of that is going to be seen as not enough. And 11 games, $5 million, again, it's better than six games and no fine, but it still doesn't feel like it's enough. I was thinking at least a one-year suspension. Uh, at the very least, um, the, the the pattern of of behavior. And again, I, I've I've said this many times as well. You know, I've been an intern coach. I've played in the NFL. You know, almost twenty years in NFL locker rooms and circles, uh, not including any of my media stuff. Everyone's got a guy. Russell Wilson rolls with his team. Everywhere he goes, he's over in Monaco hanging out with Sir Lewis Hamilton. Someone from the team is there working on his body. He's not picking up the yellow pages or contacting the concierge at the hotel asking if they got a massage therapist right. or a, you know active release guy. He got somebody I could see. You know, Tom Brady was so slavish to Al- Alex Guerrero, that ended up really fracturing the relationship with him and Bill Belichick. That's how important – this guy was to Tom Brady. So suddenly the franchise quarterback, the face of the franchise, who can have any of the most professional massage therapists and body work done is finding people on Instagram. This is where you find people for yeah. that? Yeah. It, it just It's ugly. It's behavior that I've never seen in any NFL circle as, as far as that kind of thinking goes. And again, I feel very comfortable with my term "predatory." I'm I'm with you. I mean, it, the 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 pattern and the behavior here is beyond suspicious. The other part of the thing that with with this suspension that just feels there's two parts of it that just feel like not enough. You mentioned one of them. One, he he got paid for an entire season last year that didn't he didn't play. So at least he should have been suspended for that amount of time. Of well, like well now you're not going to get paid right for that equal amount of time. Like that seems like that would have been starting to get to where it, it makes some sense. The other part of it is everybody knows he just signed a $230 million fully guaranteed contract. $5 million is a lot of money. But you don't have to be a math whiz to figure out $5 million isn't a very big chunk of two thirty. It's a slap on the wrist in, in, in every possible way. As much as $5 million can be a slap on the wrist, it is. So, you know, it would have had to have been a huge dollar sum for it to be, okay, that is an actual punishment. Because when you sign a $230 million contract, a $5 million fine is inconsequential. Yes, you're the CEO of some company. You get accused by the SEC of doing wrong, of wrongdoing. You pay your $2 million fine to the SEC. Your company uh, gives you a $400 million severance package. I think you won. Right, exactly. I, I mean, I don't have to work and I get all this money? Yes, yeah, sure, here, here, SEC. I got some money in, in the cushions of my couch Take that as I walk off of my severance package. And that's very much how this feels. Yes. Of just like not near enough for what uh, for what Deshaun Watson has been accused of. 
and that an independent investigator found that, yep, there is this this is what he's guilty of. I know he hasn't been found guilty in a court of law, but they did their investigation and they decided, hey, he needs to be suspended and all that because there was evidence to suggest that this is what actually happened. It would not be a show with James Merrillot without uh, really stirring up the hornet's nest. Uh, you went, uh, I don't know what we'll call it here, um, full bore on CSU. We'll dive into that next. Denver Sports Station 104.3 The Fan presents Chad and Nate. There is a great SID up in Boulder, Dave Platty. Uh, there's a Hall of Fame for SIDs. I think Dave Platty certainly deserves to be in that uh, category. Yep. Long time up in Boulder. Survived many coaches and athletic directors and presidents and chancellors. But Dave is still up there doing his thing. He has the front range football huddle. Is that, is that my term that correctly? Yep, the, uh, the front range huddle. The front range huddle where all the front-range schools uh, get together for a, a media opportunity, and there's usually uh, tremendous participation and buy-in for this. Um, and uh, I'll let you take the story from here. Yeah, so it's uh, it's coming up on, on Wednesday, August 24th, and it, it's a good opportunity to get media attention for local college programs, none of which are good enough at the moment that they're going to get all the TV stations and radio stations and outlets here in Denver to go down to Colorado Springs or up to Fort Collins or up to Boulder. They're just not. Now, back when you were playing at CU, they could have. The Buffs could have had their own thing, and everybody would have come up for it. But now it's a a situation where, hey, all the programs are struggling in a different way. Air Force is good, but, you know, they're they're not prominent enough to where they're going to get that kind of attention. So Dave has put together the the front-range huddle all in one spot. Media can come out get all their interviews, get all their sound bites, and it's a good opportunity for the programs to promote themselves. CSU, who participated in the first two, has decided they're not going to be there on Wednesday. Now, they're saying it's because, well, we already did our media morning you know, last week. We already did it. Oh, and my response is, really, a whole morning? Wow, <laughs> like for a full four hours you did it? Like, okay, uh, we already did our media morning. We, 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 we don't need to be there. Well, there's more to the story because a member of their athletics program got upset back in March when Chris Fusilay, the owner of Blake Street Tavern, which is where the front range huddle is going to be hosted, during the NCAA tournament had a tweet where he was ribbing the the conference because the Mountain West, the, the teams didn't fare very well. And this member of the CSU program said, well, we – and we won't be going to the front range huddle as long as it's at Blake Street Tavern. Well, it winds up at the Blake Street Tavern, and all of a sudden all, the Rams are pulling out and not going. Okay. Now, this is a little bit of a you, you look at this and go, who, who cares? I get it, but it's just to me of you got your feelings hurt in March because a guy tweeted something about your conference during the NCAA tournament. So you're going to bypass something in August, six months later. That is an opportunity to promote your program. You have a new head coach who I actually think is going to do a really good job up there. 
I, I think CSU is on the rise. And you're going to pull out of that because you got your feelings hurt? Instead of ha- taking the opportunity to promote your program in front of all the local media? CSU has more alumni in Denver than any other school. But they're not a very activated fan base. The only time they come out of their, their, their hole is when they play CU and they, they talk for 24 hours, and then typically they get their butt kicked and they go back in their hole for 364 days, and that's it. That's the only time you see it. The, the, the last time, the pre-pandemic year, 2019, they averaged 23,000 fans at their stadium. That's not good, right? That's not good. Okay, double check. So maybe you should take every opportunity you can to promote your program mm-hmm. and not have it be one morning. I, I, I just think it's, it's, it's so... It's such a misstep. I'm like, who cares that Chris Fusilay, who's it, a tremendous supporter of all the schools, and in he's this a area. CU guy, and everybody right. knows he's a CU guy. But he's the the event is open to all the programs. It's right. not a CU event. It's everybody. Air Force is going to be there. UNC is going to be there. Mines is going to be there. Pueblo, yes. And you just come across as so petty by saying we're not going to go, right? You're either petty or you you're big time. Well, we know you're not big time. <laughs> You're not. Mm-hmm. So you're coming across as petty. And, uh, uh, you know, is this going to derail the program? No. But I think if you're running a, a, the shop the way you should be running it, you're promoting it every possible turn. And this is a missed opportunity for CSU, and they're missing the opportunity because they're still upset about a tweet six months ago. That seems a little childish to me, I, I guess, agree. Is, is the term I would use. And, again, I think it's a missed opportunity. Air Force is the best program, Division One program in the state right now. Mm-hmm. It will not surprise me one bit if CSU is better this year than CU. That's not a huge accomplishment because I think CU is going to have a rough year. But that doesn't mean that this isn't a, a misstep and a mistake. And, you know, CSU people get upset when CU folks talk about how they're little brother. But isn't this kind of how a little brother would act? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> right? Instead of yeah. just saying – Hey, you know what? Mm-hmm. You can tweet us and, and and give us a hard time all you want. It's water off our back. We're gonna roll in and we're gonna we're gonna dominate this event, or we're gonna take all the promotion we can get, or whatever. But to act like this just kind of makes the point of all the CU people that like to needle us. I'll leave that there. You know, uh, I'm sure the text line is lit up with uh, CSU folks, so I'll let all those slings and arrows come to you. Um, but I think this is a good time to ask this. With the new landscape of college football, what do you see as the possible future for the CU program and then also the CSU program? Well, I think CU is in a better spot than most people think. Um, I get it. They have not been particularly competitive of late, but they also bring with them a top 20 TV market. And so that that's an attractive piece to – whatever conferences last, right? The fact that you can bring the Denver-Boulder market, and they're in it. It's not the Denver-Fort Collins market. It's the Denver-Boulder market. So I think that's important. The hist- they do have some history. It's a long time ago, but they have some history, which I think is good. You have won a national championship. You have had a, uh, a Heisman Trophy winner. You have had a ton of All-Americans and guys who've gone on to long NFL careers and that kind of thing. So I think that's important. And I think just from a, a map standpoint, right, like – there's the mountain time zone, and if you're running one of these conferences and you're trying to put together TV schedules, you're better off to have programs in every time zone because it gives you more flexibility. So I think the, I think CU's in a pretty good spot. 
I think CSU has an opportunity to move themselves into that conversation, right? Like there are a few programs that are on the outside of the Power Five looking in that might be able to get themselves in the in the in the mix, right? Boise State is is probably one that you is at the top of the list. BYU comes up every once in a while because they have such a huge national following, you know, with, with the with, with the the Church of Latter-day Saints, it's kind of Notre Dame-esque a little mm-hmm, bit. Mm-hmm. So those programs come up. Um, could CSU put themselves into it? Maybe, but they, they can only do it if they're like Boise State and win at a high level and they pack their stadium. You ain't going to be in the conversation getting 23,000 people into that, into that place. You're just not. You're not even going to get – you're going to get laughed out of the room. Um, they could be if they did it right and they, you know, got to become – "Quote unquote big time pretty quick and beat a couple of good programs and go up to Michigan and give the Wolverines everything they can handle, um, but they're you know they're missing an opportunity from the standpoint of you got to activate this fan base in Denver and get them to drive to Fort Collins a handful of times a year for home games, and you know to me you you got to take every opportunity you can to do that. I think CU is going to end up." In, in the mix, I do think they're going to be, to some extent, in spite of themselves, right? Because what they've done on the football field in the last 20 years hasn't helped. It doesn't, it doesn't warrant them being in that conversation, but I think they're still going to be in it, uh, and I, th- I think they still have that opportunity. I'm not so sure. I've never understood why it's all, the, the, all of a sudden the Big 12, when they've got teams exiting, is the one that's going to survive in the Pac-12, even though they have two teams exiting. It's still one market, big market, but one market. Why they're the one that has to fall apart. I, I still think the Pac-12, if they go get the right programs, can survive. Because to me, you're going to have the Southeast, which is the SEC. You're going to have the Midwest and Northeast, which is the Big Ten. And then somebody's got to be the western part of the country. I still think that's the Pac-12. Those are the two super or the three super uh, conferences to me. I think the Pac-12 ends up surviving it. i, I not sure what the schools are going to be, but I do think they're better situated than the Big 12 is. All right. Well, I've, I've talked about my thoughts uh, a number of times on these airwaves. Uh, when we come back, I want to dive into you know how I think the college football landscape will end up being in five years from now, seven, ten years from now. And also, uh, as well, uh, Coach Hackett did give a, a, some sound about how they want to split the quarterback reps uh, on Saturday at Buffalo. Also want to hear from him. So that'll be next. It's Chad and Nate on Denver's Sports Station. 104.3 The Fan. Uh, We ended the last segment with you taking a little bit of a sunny outlook uh, about uh, CU's athletic uh, future. Um, I uh, don't see it quite as sunnily. Uh, well, I mean, I tend to be the optimist. <laughs> so you're going to be the wet blanket, Captain Bringdown here. Oh, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I just I just don't see how uh, there's room for a third conference. Uh, as soon as possible, the Big Ten or the SEC is going to take Clemson from the ACC. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, maybe they'll grab Miami as well. Uh, Oregon and Washington will leave the Pac-12. And there'll be these leftovers. Uh, that will have to play down in Tier B is what I'm calling it right now. And there'll be a Tier A national championship, and there'll be a Tier B national championship, and there'll be a Tier C national championship. And where CU and CSU get slotted 
uh, in between B and C. I, you know, I, I don't know. There's factors uh, that will determine that. Um, but in no way do I see them ever being able to compete in Tier A. There's not the, going to be the NIL dollars for either one of those programs, which is really the driver in college football right now. I know there will be some regulations that will – probably come out in the next year or two that will maybe level the playing field. But uh, there's just simply not the same booster base from an economic standpoint for either one of those teams where they can ever be in Tier A with Texas and Oklahoma and Michigan and Alabama and Clemson and all those schools. It, it would be – I know Alabama has played CSU, you know, a couple times in the last decade or so, and it was a money game for CSU, and it was a joke of a game for Alabama. Uh, that's not a level playing field. I think we we move college football to true level playing fields. You're a top upper echelon school. You're participating in a billion dollar media deal for your uh, conference. Then yeah, then you're up there in tier A, and then tier B, which could be the leftovers of the Pac-12 and the Big 12, and then we kick in BYU and schools like that. And maybe they don't have a thirty million dollar collective like Tennessee has, or some of these other top tier A schools have. Maybe it's a ten million dollar fund for NIL deals, and that's Tier B. And then Tier C is a $5 million NIL fund to pay their athletes, and the TV contracts for that network is, uh, or for that conference is $250 million, not a billion dollars. And that's a level playing field. So therefore, those schools can compete for a national championship for schools that are at their same level. That's how I see college football five, seven, ten years down the road. Okay, well, part of it depends on how many teams make up that tier A, right? Is it 32 or is it 48? Or is it some other number? Now, to me, if it's 48, you end up with the three 16-team conferences. You have the SEC, you have the Big Ten, and then you have the PAC, what would become the 16. And that gives you sort of, in terms of the map, right? Southeast, Midwest, North, Northeast, and then west of the Mississippi, basically. I know you got, you know, Texas and some teams like that, but essentially... And I think obviously CU would make that cut if it's just thirty. But, but if okay, so you made that cut to what end? How do you ever compete? There's Al- no, but, Alabama but, pays their analysts more than CU pays their coaches. I get it. I get it. But there, I could have. You didn't even need to tell me the poll, and I could have told you the top five teams in the country. I can write down right now on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, stick it up on this window, and here's the twenty twenty three preseason college football poll. And I'll bet you I can get eight of the top ten correct. It's the same teams every year. Outside of Utah, I'd say you would be absolutely correct. Okay, so yes. and that would be the outlier that I happen to miss next year is Utah or some who's next year's Utah. There's right. going to be one, but that's it. Like it, we we know who the who three of the four teams are going to be in the playoff. It's going to be Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State. Who's the other one? All right, we're going to spend thirteen weeks figuring out who's going to be the other team. To me, that's a bad broken sport. That's another conversation for another day. But can CU compete? No, but you know who else can't? Vanderbilt. Why is Vanderbilt getting their share of it? At some point, if you're Alabama, you're going to start, you're going to start saying, why are we giving them a, a piece of this TV pie? I've, I've long said Alabama, I mean, uh, Vanderbilt does not belong in the SEC from a competitive standpoint. Big, the Big Ten's got the same thing. They just signed a 7 or $8 billion TV deal. Right. right? Why are you giving part of that to Rutgers? Why? If I'm Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan State, if I'm the big teams in that, why am I giving Rutgers their piece of that? So the greed of it and the don't want to share of it is going to eliminate some teams too. Can CU compete with Alabama right now? No, of course not. 
but are they equally equipped to compete with them as Vanderbilt? Sure. But, uh, in, in my system, there is a you know, like the European soccer leagues where you don't perform well enough, you get kicked out. Oh, that'd be fantastic. And we, we'll take teams from te- – so if you're Cincinnati or Central Florida, and you're like, okay, we're ready for tier A. You want to come up with the big boys, then Vanderbilt and Rutgers get kicked out. Uh, uh, Central Florida and Cincinnati go up to tier A, and we'll see what you guys can do. That would be the perfect world. That's how it should work is, hey, it's 32 teams. It's a nice even number. We see it in the NFL. makes scheduling easy. Here's 32 teams. And, I, you know, you figure out what the system is. If you're in the bottom four, you know, two out of three years, you go down. And if you're in the top four, two out of three years, you go up or whatever it is. You can't just have it be one season of right. you, you lose your starting them. quarterback and right. now you're relegated. Like, it, it, you got to have it. Not that that should do that, but you know what I'm saying. It's got to be something that's a little bit more of a, a, a pattern of performance, good or bad. That would be an ideal. And would CU have to be in tier B trying to play their way in? Probably. Yeah. I don't I, I think if you but if you were just going right now and said, Hey, I'm gonna build thirty a thirty two team college football league and I want it spread out all over the country and I want history and I want T V markets and I want time zones and I want all the rest of it. I'm not sure CU doesn't make that cut. Top thirty two teams. If you they in, might be in the conversation. If you incorporate all those other variety of factors, yes. But as far as where the pro the state of the program uh, they are not a top 32 state of the program. They're not right now. They're not. But if I'm just starting off and I want to and I want to make sure, hey, we're we're building this thing as balanced as I can in terms of all those other factors. I think the Buffs make the cut. I do, and it's again, it's there. It's in spite of themselves. Yeah, again, because it would, be, it would be to what end to be at the bottoms of this 32 team league? Because again, just the economics alone they're going to have an incredibly difficult time competing. Yeah, but I, I'd rather I'd rather have a hard time competing in Tier A than really dominate Tier B. Like, do you, you know why there's 23,000 fans at a CSU game? It's Don't. not because they're bad fans. It's not. I like to needle them, but it's not because they're bad fans. Because it's what's the point? If you have a great year, it's the road to the, to the New Mexico Bowl. Yeah. Like, how, how – El mean, Paso, here we come, baby. How, yes. How, how excited about that can you get? I mean, I do think that's part of it is there's really no point. It's part of why college football is broken. There are five five Harlem Globetrotters teams, and then there's 125 Washington Generals. That's the issue that needs to be resolved. All right. Uh, the Twitterverse is uh, 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 hitting some news on Nazem Kadri. Elliot Friedman is reporting that uh, Kadri to the Calgary to Calgary is – in talks, uh, there seems to be a difference of opinion whether it's talks or actually happening. So just a little bit of news there. But make sure you guys uh, check out the Fan War Room, the preseason special. Today, noon to 2 at Brothers Barbecue off I-25 in Arapahoe. Zach By will be leading the crew of Orlando, no Sean James. He's going to do four hours. Look at you, man. Yeah, I get a little break here in between. All right. And Cecil, uh, they'll be out there dissecting the Broncos preseason uh, who should play on Saturday? All that good stuff, I'm sure, will be topics. This is it for James and I. We hand this thing over to Stokely and Zach in the uh, war room at noon. Hey, this is Nate Jackson. Thanks for checking out Chad and Nate On Demand, presented by SCL Mortgage, the home of MySpecialMortgage.com.